All right, we're going through Acts on Sunday night. If you'll take your Bibles and join me in Acts chapter 2 as we begin a new chapter tonight in our series through the book of Acts. Verses 1 through 4 is what we'll read tonight. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. They were filled with the Holy Ghost, began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Amen. Remember that the book of Acts is the account of how the ministry of Christ is transitioning from His physical presence to Him no longer being there physically, but indwelling believers through the person of the Holy Ghost. Last time we met together in this study, the emphasis was on transitions. How do we deal with times of transition in our church and also in our life? We see how the early church dealt with the transition of personnel in replacing uh, Judas Iscariot at the end of chapter 1. And just by way of recap, transitions are a natural part of life. We're going to have transitions as long as you live in this life. And unfortunately, we live in the day where I have to say it, but not gender transitions, but transitions in life. Things that are changing, things that we deal with. We just really need to come to terms with the fact that life goes on. It's a natural part of life. It's natural for your children to move on in life. I'm not looking at you, Grant. I'm looking at her. Um, You know, it's natural for death to take place. And we just have to learn to embrace the natural cycle of life. I say that because several have been sidelined with the death of a loved one. They may feel it happened too soon. They weren't ready to let go, whatever the case. And it caused them to be hindered spiritually as a result. Don't fight these transitions in life. There are spiritual transitions as well. The older generation stops doing the heavy lifting so that the younger folks with the stronger backs can step up and get to work. It's natural. We start out as newborn babes in Christ. Desire the milk of the Word of God that we might grow and mature. And as we grow and we begin to transition in our spiritual life, we want to move on to the meat of God's Word. And it's during times of spiritual transitions that we face trials and tribulations. And some are going to look at what they go through and they're going to misread them as the judgment of God, as somehow God is mean, get bitter towards God and His people and the church and the preacher. And, but listen, what, what God is doing in your life is conforming you into the image of His Son. That's not going to take place without some pain along the way. 
You've heard me say it several times. God doesn't paint murals, but He chisels sculptures. It hurts. Have things chipped away from our life. But it takes hard times to do that. So don't misread the situation. And don't grow bitter as a result. The seasons of testing are usually not enjoyable. But through those testings, if we're faithful, we'll get to know God more deeply, more intimately, and walk closer with Him. Philippians 3.10, Paul wrote, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. How is he going to do that? He says, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being made conformable unto His death. Hard times are just part of the package deal, folks. That's the Christian life. Don't misread them. God's just working in your life. He wants to conform you. Amen. And so here's these followers of Christ. They're going through this special time of transition. Jesus has ascended back into glory. He's no longer physically walking upon this earth. They now have to learn what it means to minister with the Holy Ghost indwelling them. This is a very real time of transition that they're going through. Remember that before Jesus ascended, He gave them what we call the Great Commission. They were to go into all the world preaching, baptizing, Discipling. But before they could go, they first had to wait for the promise of the Father, which we know from Acts chapter 1 would be the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Jesus said, Tarry ye until ye be endued with power from on high. I want you to go, but I need you to tarry first because I need this to take place in your life. Acts 1.4 tells us how Jesus commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the Father. Don't you love waiting? We can be guilty of thinking that it's all about us. It's all about our efforts. But sometimes God wants you to learn, you just need to wait. Listen, this is so important because so many go, well, I tried church. I tried reading my Bible. I tried to be faithful, and and God didn't do anything. Tarry ye until ye. When you don't learn to wait, and you become impatient, you're going to misread everything. And God wants us to learn to just be patient. Why does He do this? I believe it's so we can learn it's all about Him. The religions of this world will tell you that you have to do something in order to appease God or the gods, whatever the religion may be, that somehow you have to do some work, some effort, in order to gain the attention of that deity. But in true Christianity, it's all about what God has already done for us. He said, you can't make your way up to me, so I'm going to come down to you. Whoop! God never wants us to lose sight of this truth. God wanted them to go and preach, but before they did, they needed to first obey the command to wait. God wanted them to learn that it was not about their strength. It was all about His strength. God wanted them to know it was all about 
Him working through them and in them. The fulfillment of the Great Commission to go into all the world wasn't about their fleshly efforts and their strength at all. And this idea of us being responsible for the outcome can easily manifest itself in churches like ours. We often don't say it this way, but it is true. And I'm going to walk a fine line right here, but I want you to hear my heart on what it is I'm trying to communicate to you. I've heard several testimonies from pastors who seemingly hit this roadblock in their ministry. And by their own testimony, they state that in order to get things going again, I went out and I beat the street and I doubled my efforts. It's it's as if that effort was the key to seeing God at work. They speak of how it didn't work. And then after they gave up on their efforts of trying to earn God's favor, even though they wouldn't put it in those terms, they say God honored their seed sowing months later. I think rather than God solely honoring the sowing of the seed, although He does, I think it was God trying to show them it wasn't about them and their efforts trying to gain the attention and favor of God. Wait a minute, preacher. Are you suggesting we should stop saturating our city? Because that's what it sounds like to me. No, I'm not suggesting that at all. But I am saying this. We don't obey the Great Commission to earn God's favor or to gain God's attention but we obey because it's the right thing to do regardless of the harvest. We don't control that. And and I see this manifested in all different kinds of ways. Well, I tried that and it didn't fix my marriage. I tried that and it didn't get my children in line. And I, I tried that, but I still had financial... I tried that, but I still... Let God work. Learn to wait. I believe what happened in a lot of those cases that I was just giving you is people came to the point where they had to admit they had no other choice but to say, I am completely inadequate for what God's called me to do. Listen, we don't ever have to wonder if God is for our church so long as we are true to the doctrines of His Word. Listen, Jesus bled and died for the church. He, he died, He bled to purchase the church. So I don't ever have to doubt, Lord, are you concerned about Liberty Baptist Tabernacle? And maybe I'm just preaching to myself because there's times where I have to go to God in prayer and I just have to remind God because He might have forgotten. God, this is your church. I didn't bleed for it. I didn't die for it. This is your church. It's up to you to do a work here. That doesn't mean we get to just push aside what God has commanded. That's why I don't know if I'm able to communicate this the way it needs to be, but God wants this church to flourish more than we do. I hope you believe that. And the moment we think the blessings of God are up to our fleshly efforts, we're beginning to miss it. And don't be deceived. Listen to me. Churches can accomplish great works in the power of their flesh. They can put in programs. They can follow a worldly business model. They can do all these things. They can 
change the program and the music and offer hot dogs or whatever people want to eat, I don't know. Get people in, and you can grow the church numerically. Amen. But do they have the presence of God? There's plenty of churches that are flourishing in the world's eyes. All we have to do is trust and obey and let God do what He does. These believers in the book of Acts were simply obedient to the command to wait. And through their obedience to wait, God blesses them with an outpouring of the Holy Ghost. We're not in this trying to make a deal with God and say, God, if we go and saturate our city, then you've got to do this. That's not what we're doing. We sow the seed of the Word of God because it's commanded. That's why we do it. It is simple obedience to God. And then after we sow the seed, we have to learn to just wait on the Lord of the harvest. You cannot plant a garden and go pick tomatoes the next day. It takes time. I hope this makes sense. I've already covered in a previous message in this series, in this series the, the lesson in our text here is before we ever go in the first place, we ought to be right with God. Don't go in the power of your flesh. Only with God can we be effective. Psalm 59.9 says, Because of His strength will I wait upon thee. I'm waiting upon God because He's strong. And I don't have to bull myself through, but I just need to wait. Psalm 62.5, My soul, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from Him. wonder how many times we've forged ahead in our own strength without God in order to accomplish something that God really wanted us to wait on Him for. I believe many times God is just about to come through, but we grow impatient and we try to solve it ourselves. We end up missing the blessing of God. If we want to be an Acts kind of a church, we have to learn to wait for God and His power. We must learn the truth of tarrying. Not laziness, but waiting on God while still obeying God. Being of one accord and one mind in one place, doing what is already commanded in His Word. The song says, in His time. He makes all things beautiful in His time. Lord, please show me every day as You're teaching me Your way that You do just what You say in Your time. We believe here at Liberty Baptist Tabernacle that we will go forward debt-free. That means even if we could go to the bank and show them on paper that we could afford a loan, we're not going to do that. I want a new parking lot. I want bigger Sunday school rooms. I want more seating. Like I said, maybe this message is for me right here, but it's like God says, no, just wait. How many young people got ahead of God and couldn't wait for the one that God had for them? They destroyed their life. Wait. What does this mean? Back to the church issue. We still do our part in giving as we should. 
He will provide all of our needs according to his riches. The great part is I believe those needs are already provided. We just got to give them. Brother Boyer, I'm capitalizing on this morning, amen? He, he texted me and said, hey, I don't envy you having to preach on tithe. Yeah, that was fun, wasn't it? You guys actually came back, though, so you get a double dose. Shame on you, amen. You bunch of faithful Baptists, you'll learn. All right. So we still do our part. We still bring in the offerings for the work of the tabernacle, but we don't need to get ahead of God. I believe we all want to reach more souls for Christ. We just don't need to adjust God's ways of doing things in order to get them into the door. Stay faithful and obedient to God, and He will bless in His time. Now, how about as individuals? Have you learned to wait upon God? It's a learned behavior. We sing Isaiah 40, 31, and what do we add to the end of that? Teach me, Lord. Teach me, Lord, to wait. It is learned. Just raise kids and you'll know. It's a learned behavior. Psalm 27, 14, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. He will strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Psalm 103, verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait and in His word do I hope. The end of Isaiah 49, 23 says, Thou shalt know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. Meaning those who learn to wait on God won't be confounded, and they won't be disappointed. And I want you to listen closely to that last phrase again. Thou shalt know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. The connection there to knowing the Lord is a result of learning to wait on Him. When we don't wait, we never get to see His provision. When we don't wait, we can't say that I know the Lord did this for me. So have you learned to wait on the Lord? God always comes through. But it's in His time according to His will. May we learn to allow patience to have her perfect work. James 1, 3 and 4, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Wow. Preachers often jokingly say, don't pray for patience. It's a bad thing to say. Some of them may mean it. I think most are just kidding. But it's, it's, it's unbiblical. You want patience. When we learn patience, the Bible says we become perfect. Or we become complete. We mature. And that we want nothing. When we learn patience, we begin to understand that godliness with contentment is great gain. When we learn to wait on God, He gets all the glory. Not our own ingenuity. We learn to wait on God, and He'll get all the honor and praise. Because when we wait on God, He is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think. The early believers waited, and then God worked mightily. If you read through this chapter, there's nothing about this day that they can point to as being a result of their efforts. That's important. 
It was all about God working through them. We have the Word of God. We know what we are to be obeying. So I I think in our day, we just need to have the right frame of mind that what I'm doing is because God commanded it and I'm not trying to earn God's favor. I'm not trying to earn God's blessing. My standing with God is where it ought to be because of Christ. Now, I didn't want to take that long talking about waiting. I'm sorry to make you wait as I talked about waiting. So, let's get back to our text here. Where in verse 1 we see the day of Pentecost was fully come. This gives us an indication of how much time had passed, how long they actually waited for the promise of the Father, because Pentecost means 50th. In other words, it was 50 days from the Passover. I've nearly driven myself insane trying to nail all of this down, and it's not necessarily because it's difficult to understand. It's because I'm not that bright. Thank you, Breck. And I didn't have time this week to devote to it. I'm sorry. I didn't get to really dig into this. Thankfully, though, as I was researching this, I discovered several varying opinions out there, which makes me hopeful that maybe I'm not quite as dumb as I think that I am. Here we go. Jesus was crucified on the day of the preparation of the Passover, which according to Mark 15, 42, is the day before the Sabbath. Therefore, if I am thinking correctly... And Brother Jones can correct me later. Uh, Raymond Jones, not Adam Jones. I don't, I don't trust Adam Jones. Amen. Uh, <laughs> we're going to have a split before the night's over. Um, if I'm thinking correctly, Jesus resurrected on the day after the high Sabbath, Passover day, which I think would be the day that you begin to count 50 days to Pentecost. If that's correct, and since we know Jesus showed himself alive for 40 days, then a maximum of 10 days from his ascension until Pentecost would have elapsed. Now, depending on when you start counting and ending those days, you could shorten the 10 down to 8. So, in my opinion, as of right now, I think somewhere between 8 to 10 days of them waiting to be endued with power from on high after Jesus ascended. To my knowledge, though, when all is said and done, it doesn't affect a thing. Why are you giving us this? I studied it. I don't know. It really has nothing to do with anything except I wanted to know what Pentecost meant and that led into this. Amen. Let's just move on. While in verse 1, though, I would like to take time to address a common teaching that is out there, but one that I personally believe is false. And that is, when did the New Testament church begin? Many say the church was born on the day of Pentecost. I don't think one should be so dogmatic on that. Now, don't worry, I don't want to debate with you on whether or not I'm right or you're right. Much like the last point, it probably is going to serve no purpose tonight. But I studied it, so now you get to hear it. So maybe it'll work for somebody. It's an interesting debate nonetheless, and I'm going to work my way backwards in laying all of this out. But before I do, what is a church? Well, very simply put, a church is a called-out assembly. Those who have been called out from the world to be separated unto God, a peculiar people. I find it interesting in verse 41 of this same chapter that 3,000 souls are said to be added unto them. Added unto who? Obviously, there was a group already in existence. Was that group a church? 
Verse 47 here in this chapter says, And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now that's the same language as being added in verse 41, which leads me to believe that those in verse 41 were also added to the church, which already consisted of at least 120 believers before the day of Pentecost arrived. Therefore, in my humble opinion, I believe the church was already in existence before the day of Pentecost, as there were at least 120 called out, separated, meeting together, and they were brought out by the Lord already. As we studied in chapter 1, they appear to already be functioning as a church because they're having a business meeting to select Judas Iscariot's replacement. Now let's keep going backwards. Some hold that since Acts 20.28 says the church was purchased with the blood of Christ, then the church could not have existed before Christ shed His blood. Some in this camp hold that the church began in John chapter 20 when they were assembled together on the day of Jesus' resurrection and the Lord shows up that evening and He breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. This is an interesting point, but does this mean the church could not have existed before that time? Well, for the answer to that, let's think about the issue of salvation. We know we are saved and that our sins are forgiven through the blood of Christ, just as the church is purchased by the blood. But does this mean none were forgiven of their sins and saved before Christ's crucifixion? Well, not according to the Bible. In Luke chapter 7, a woman brought an alabaster box of ointment, and as she's weeping down at Jesus' feet, she, uh, her tears, she's washing Jesus' feet and wiping them with the hairs of her head. She kissed His feet and anointed them with the ointment. In Luke 7, 48-50, Jesus said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at me with him began to say within themselves, Who is that that forgiveth sins also? And he said to thy woman, and he said to the woman, Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. Clearly, then, even though Christ had not yet shed his blood, he had the power to save and to forgive sins, and that's what he did. Therefore, we couldn't, I believe we could use the same principle that if Jesus could save and forgive sins, He could also establish a church, even though His blood hasn't been shed yet. I think one can make that argument. Perhaps most compelling is Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 18, which we use today as one of the primary passages to speak on the issue of church discipline and the progression through that. The Bible says in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto, them, unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. So why would Jesus instruct his followers to take matters before the church if the church never existed? Well, some say it's because Jesus was only speaking prophetically. But if the church was still a mystery as it was to the prophets, then why didn't any of Jesus' disciples pipe up and say, Excuse me, Jesus, but what is this church you speak of? Now, the first use of the word church in our New Testament is actually in Matthew 16 and verse 18, where Jesus said to Peter, And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Just in case any are wondering, 
That rock is Christ, not Peter. Again, for a word that was shrouded in mystery to the prophets, never used throughout the Old Testament, why doesn't Peter, who Jesus is speaking to and who is very bold and speaks his mind, why doesn't Peter or even the rest of those present listening pipe up and ask, Lord, what's the church? I don't understand what you mean by the church. I believe the answer could be that Jesus had already made it clear that they were a called out assembly. And that upon Christ, the church would be built because He started it. So when did this begin? It's just my opinion, okay? My opinion. And I'm willing to debate it with anybody and be proven wrong because I don't think I'm dogmatic. But if we remember that a church is a called out assembly, then I believe the church likely had its beginnings when Jesus began to walk up to the twelve and said, Follow me. He called them out. But what about the requirement for baptism to be added to the church? Well, these men had been baptized at the hands of John the Baptist. We know this because the qualification there at the end of chapter 1 to be the replacement for Judas Iscariot was somebody that had to have been a follower of Jesus from the time of John's baptism. I'm not sure if this is the intent, but some try to use 1 Corinthians 12.28 to try and show the church started with the original 12. It says, And God hath set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles and gifts of healing, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Perhaps, I don't know. Some say, well, the Bible says He set some in the church, first apostles. Therefore, the first 12 were the first church. Some also use John 4, 1, and 2 to show the existence of the church before Pentecost because folks were being baptized at that time already. They were being baptized by the disciples. You remember it says Jesus didn't baptize any of them, but the disciples were baptizing. And the fact that the Lord instituted His memorial supper before the day of Pentecost is used by some as well, that when He used the bread and the wine to picture His body and blood, that was the ordinance that He was given to the church celebrating with these believers If those two thoughts are on the right track, then we have the two ordinances entrusted to the local church before the day of Pentecost. Again, does it ultimately matter? I reckon not. However, I think it might be useful to help further explain Jesus is the rock upon which the church is built. He is the head of the church. He is the cornerstone that was rejected. And upon that rock, the church rests. Since He's the head and He's the rock, I believe He founded the church while He was here. You don't have to agree with that. Wasn't that fun? I am so sorry to waste your time tonight. I was not happy with this message at all. I spent a lot of time on on things that are not critical. You know what I'm saying? Um, Don't be upset with me, though. Now, I believe preaching ought to challenge the listener. So let me close by going back to my opening thought. Have you learned to wait upon God? Don't get ahead of God. Let patience have her perfect work. And as you do, you'll learn to trust Him more. You'll be able to see how He meets the needs of His children. And you'll get to know the Lord better as you learn to wait upon Him. He just wants us to learn it's all about Him. Now, you need to be in God's will for this to be true. And I think this is important you understand this. 
you can't just live your life any old way you please and get it all messed up and then say, God, come and clean all this up. That's not how the system works, if I can put it in those words. You have to be in the will of God, obeying God, doing the very best that you can. You've got to be in the will of God. God's not just going to come and bail you out, but God will meet all of your needs when you're obeying Him and following Him. Because what happens without fail, preacher, my life is in a mess. Where you been? Have you been witnessing? Have you been giving? Five to thrive. Have you even been doing those things? Then stop asking God to come and bail you out like some genie in the sky. Sorry, genie. Learn to wait on God. Let's pray.